Well, good morning. Welcome to Salem Chapel. If you're new with us, if you're watching us online or you're in this room and you're brand new, my name is Johnny Pereira. I haven't been up here much uh, in the month of September and uh, I want to thank Mark last week. Um, I had to miss church. Our family had to miss church because um, I was uh, in a golf scramble for the Winston-Salem Rescue Mission and someone that I was with tested positive for coronavirus, who will name, remain nameless according to HIPAA laws. And, uh, and so I never got it, but unfortunately I had to quarantine. Uh, I was thinking of you all and everyone else, and I uh, got the privilege to know what it's like to get a coronavirus test uh, on Thursday. Obviously it tested negative or I wouldn't be here, but here's what I can tell you. Your senior pastor has a brain. They found it. Um, the Q-tip touched it. Q-tips touched it. Uh, so anyway, praise God for that. And it's so good to be out of jail and to be with you all this morning. So turning your Bibles to Judges chapter 3, as you're turning there, I want to announce something that's very, very important. Very important. Look to the neighbor and say, this is important. Okay. So next Sunday, October 11th at 6 p.m., Right here in this room, we are going to have what we call a family forum. And we want to gather together anyone that calls Salem Chapel their home. If you're a member of this church, you're a family member of this church, we want you to be here. If you're like, well, I haven't done that yet, we want you to be here. That's all I'm going to say about it. We're going to share with you some very important information that is important to who we are as a church, uh, where we're headed. And so if you're watching us online and you're eating pancakes this morning and you decided not to come to church, you need to be here next week. Okay, and uh, if for some reason you can't come because of health reasons, then, then uh, we have accommodated you as well. You can go to that link that's on your screen right now. If you want to pull out your phone right now, I won't be offended and you sign up right now, but I promise you uh, it's important that you're here uh, for that, and that's all I'm going to say about that, but uh, that'll be a very important night to, to who we are as Salem Chapel. So let me go through this morning because it's been a while since I've been up here. We are in this brand new series entitled Broken People, Faithful God, walking through the book of Judges. We this morning are in Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 30. That's what we're going to look at today. But I want to remind ourselves of something. Maybe this will be new for you. Maybe you've heard it before, but I think it's important that we remind ourselves of it. That the theme of this Bible that we open up every week that we say when the word of God is open, what is open? His mouth is open, very good. That's what we say here at Salem Chapel. It's kind of one of our just family phrases that when God's word is open, God's mouth is open. But what you need to understand is that from Genesis all the way to the back of your Bible in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the theme of the entire Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation is God's purpose to save his people. That's the entire theme of the Bible. It's God going after redeeming, saving his people. And so I say that because when we come to a book like Judges, Judges is a violent book. It's a disturbing book. It can be like, man, what in the world is that passage of scripture in there for like like in my own in our own group we have I have some guys that we're reading through the reading plan together and you can access that on our website salemchapel.org backslash judges if you haven't already and it was interesting this week I even got some texts from some people like Johnny what in the world are you gonna 
teach on this week from this passage of scripture. So if you've already read it, you already know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, well, buckle your safety belts, okay? So here's really the three things that I want you to see in this passage of scripture, because I'm going to give an overview of these verses, and then we're going to jump into them this morning. First thing that we're going to see in this passage of scripture is sin. We've seen that over and over again already in this book. The repetitive pattern of Israel to sin. We see it again in this passage of scripture. We come to a passage of scripture where Israel has just experienced 40 years of rest through the deliverance, through the merciful love of God, through his servant, through the judge Othniel to rescue his people from captivity. They've just experienced 40 years of rest. And what we're going to find out in this passage of scripture is that they do what they did before and they wander away from the Lord and they find themselves in captivity again. We're going to see sin in this passage. But here's another thing that we're going to see. Specifically a person that we're going to see. We're going to be faced with what I want to call a slob. Because we're going to be introduced to this person named Eglon. Eglon was the king of Moab. And the word Eglon, the name Eglon, you want to know what it means? Just say yes. Make me feel good. Eglon literally means cow. Probably why you've never met anybody named Eglon. Like, you know those little cards that you used to get, like, your name means this? Like, you remember those? Uh, no, there's no, I promise you there's not a card named Eglon that says your name means cow. But that's the individual that we have here in this story. An extremely overweight person. He's described as a very fat man in this passage of scripture. He has no regard for the Lord. He has no interest in the things of the Lord. He is a picture of someone who never says no to what his desires want. We have a slob. But then we're introduced to another thing in this passage of scripture, and that is a sword. See, we're introduced to this person named Ehud, and he takes this sword, and he's appointed by God to go, and to go into Eglon's chambers, and to take that sword, and to slay this slob, so that Israel can once again experience the forgiveness and the merciful love of God and be rescued from the captivity that they're living under. This passage of scripture, we see three things. We see sin, we see a slob, and we see a sword. So if you're taking notes and you've been intrigued all week, what we're gonna look at in this passage of scripture, that's the title of the message this morning. Sin, a slob, and a sword. That's the title of the message. Not too, I'm, I'm pretty, I, I would say I have a safe bet this morning that churches across Winston-Salem are not teaching on this passage of scripture today. So we are a unique bunch this morning, so I'm excited to share with you what God has for us. Here's the idea that I want us to get, and I'm going to say it before we jump into this passage of Scripture, but you will be able to see it as we walk through this passage of Scripture and see how I'm pulling out application from what we're going to read in this narrative. Here's the idea, that I, that you, have been given the Savior's strength to slay the slob of sin that is holding you, that is holding me captive. I wonder this morning if you sit here and you're listening to me in this auditorium or you're watching me online right now, I wonder if there is a sin that is holding you captive. And you're just like the children of Israel. You've been having this repetitive cycle of where you sin and then you confess it to the Lord, but then you keep on repeating this lifestyle. And I wonder if you're honest this morning, you would say, yeah, I'm being held captive by sin because sin is a slob and we're going to talk about that. 
But what I want you to understand is the hope that you have if you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you have the Savior's strength to slay the slob of sin that is holding you captive, maybe even this morning. Here's why I say that. Mark mentioned it last week, and he did a great job having to get noticed at the very last minute. But 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he mentioned this. I want to mention it this morning, where Paul says, no temptation has taken you. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above, above your ability, but will with the temptation also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, I have that first memorized in the King James Version, which is why I had to look at it, because I don't have it memorized in the ESV. But do you, understand, do you see the hope there? That the sin that we are struggling with this morning, that if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, God has not designed us to be held captive by that sin, but that we have been given victory through Jesus Christ, that we have the Savior's strength through the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 37 says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So I'm gonna stop right here this morning and I wanna ask us to pray. I'm gonna pray out loud. I wanna ask you to pray just in the quietness of your seat. And I want you to think about the sin that's holding you captive. And I want you to pray, Lord, would you help me to see the strength that you have given me to slay that slob of sin? Would you pray that with me as I pray out loud? Lord, we're here today to hear from you. Lord, thank you for the privilege to gather together as the people of God, as the family of God. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity. God, it cannot be replicated on a screen. And Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity. And Lord, I pray for those in this room that may be held captive by a certain sin. And God, they've just come to the false reality that this is just the way it's gonna be. Lord, I pray that they would walk out of here understanding that they have a strength that is available to them that is not found in themselves but is found in the power of the Holy Spirit provided through Jesus Christ? Or would you speak today in a way that we would listen in Jesus' name, amen. Here's what I wanna do this morning. I wanna give you four ways, four ways from this passage of scripture that we can utilize the Savior's strength to slay the slob of sin that is holding us captive. So let's jump into verses 12 through 14 in this passage of scripture. If you're there, say you're there. All right. And it says, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In my Bible, I have that word underlined again. Again. Wasn't the first time. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened the Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. The city of Palms is the city of Jericho. Do you remember that in Judges 6? If you, if you know your Bible stories, um, in Judges 6, they, the very first battle that they face is they come across the city of Jericho. The walls are so thick that people live inside the walls. Remember Rahab lived inside one of those walls and God spared Rahab because of her faith in the Lord. That that city that they walked around seven times and blew their trumpets and smashed their lanterns and yelled and the walls came tumbling down. That amazing moment 
moment in Israel's history, this is that same history, this is that same city that now is held captive by a pagan king named Eglon, whose name means cow. And it says the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, interesting, 18 years. We've shown this chart before and we'll show it every week, the, this pattern that we see in the book of Judges. The people sin, they cry out to God for forgiveness, the Lord delivers out of his merciful love, but unfortunately, they sin again. And we see this repetitive, cyclical behavior over and over again. And how true is that of our lives. Now, here's what I want you to see when you look at this passage of scripture. Here's what I think is interesting. And as I was walking through this myself, studying it this week, but even when I walked through this in my own quiet time uh, six to eight months ago, you know, you would think when you read this, at least I do, when I read this, when you read this, you would think that gratitude would have motivated the people of Israel to obey the Lord. After all, what did he do through Othniel? He rescued the people out of captivity and they've experienced rest for 40 years. Like they've been reminded about how great the Lord is and how loving the Lord is and the mercy that the Lord has, the, the Lord that has covenanted with his people that if they obey him, that things will go well for them. And then think of all the things that Israel had done, experienced in the past that the Lord has done. Rescuing them out of Egypt, leading them in the wilderness, all the battles that they had won as they claimed the land of Canaan, the promised land that the Lord had given them. All of these things, all of this inventory of gratitude that they had to remind themselves who the Lord was. But it didn't matter. It didn't matter. It didn't matter that they forgot the reality that they were nothing and they had nothing outside of God's covenant love for them. They'd forgotten that. That had grown stale in their lives. And what I find interesting when I read these verses in 12 through 14 is that they were in captivity for 18 years. Like you would think, like they've done this before. They were in captivity for eight years. In the previous passage of scripture, they cry out to the Lord. The Lord brings Othniel, Othniel from the tribe of Judah. He rescues the people from Israel and they experience 40 years of rest in comparison to eight years of captivity. You would have thought they would have said when Eglon came in and, and, and took Jericho captive that they would have said, guys, I know what we need to do. The very first day it would have happened. We need to cry out to the Lord. We need to confess our sin. We need to look for him deliverance so we can get out of this mess. But it took them 18 years. Like, did anybody else think that when they saw that? Like, why did it say, and day one of captivity? Like, they know what God can do. But it took 18 years. Here's the first way that we utilize a savior's strength to slay the slob of sin that's holding us captive. Number one, man, we need to wake up. We need to wake up to the circumstances of our present reality. For some of us, it's time to wake up. It's time for us to say, what is my present reality? 
What am I experiencing right now in my life? What am I settling for that is a result of my sin? See, some of us are in this room or watching this online and you have got yourself into believing that this is as good as it's gonna be in your life. That your marriage is on the brink of divorce and you're like, this is just the way that it's gonna be. You're totally addicted to whatever it is, whatever sin is plaguing. You're like, this is just the way that it's gonna be. And for whatever reason, that sin has taken your hope away from you that the Lord wants something better for your life. And what the Lord wants you, first of all, to realize so that you can utilize his strength to slay sin in your life that's holding you captive is to say, no, the Lord's saying, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up to the present circumstances that you're experiencing. I want something better for you. Here's three important things you need to understand about sin this morning. I'm gonna go through these quickly. Number one, sin is a slow fade. Sin is a slow fade. 40 years of rest, and I don't believe after 40 years of rest that 40 years and one day Eglin comes on, kicks open the door, so to speak, and takes Israel over. No, no, no. It was a slow fade. We don't know when it took. Maybe it took place in year 30. Remember what we talked about, and you start with complacency and then compromise and then conformity. It's a slow fade. I've never met anybody in my life who decided one day to blow up their life, and yesterday their relationship with the Lord was amazing, and today it's like, you know what? I'm going to make this decision and blow up my life today. And I found out about a friend last week who was a dear friend of mine who I would have said to you had a great relationship with the Lord and I found out his life right now is in the ditch. Totally blew me away. And you know what it reminded me? That doesn't happen overnight. Sin is a slow fade. The sin that's holding you captive right now, it was a slow fade. Here's another thing, sin overpromises and underdelivers every time. It overpromises and underdelivers because it's rooted in a lie that says this that God is wanting to rob you from experiencing something that is that is better than what he has already promised. We don't have time to expound on that. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say the lie that Satan made Adam and Eve believe that took of the fruit that allowed sin to enter the world and he's been doing it ever since sin always overpromises and underdelivers and it's rooted in a lie but it's rooted in ingratitude towards the Lord to whom you owe everything Romans 121 says this although they knew God speaking of humanity they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Here's the third thing about sin. Sin is addictive. It's addictive. I have certain things in my life that I'm more prone to be tempted to sin, and they may be different than you, or they may be the same things. I don't know. But man, sin is addictive. 
And it can easily cause us to think that when we're wrapped in its web, there's no way to get out. And I wonder if that's where the children of Israel were. They had forgot that the Lord was their deliverer. They had forgot of the Lord's merciful love 40 years ago. And they've allowed them to be lulled to sleep by sin to where this was as good as it was going to be. And 18 years of that led them to the place where they're like, this is just what it's going to be. We're going to be ruled by a slob. And this is our life. But aren't you glad the story doesn't end there? I know I am. I know I am. See, here's the thing about unconfessed sin. Here's what it does. It weakens us. Some of you have unconfessed sin. And it's weakening you. It's making you vulnerable to more destructive choices in your life. And sooner or later, it is going to enslave you, just like the children of Israel. And the first way that we utilize the Savior's strength to not be held captive by sin any longer is to wake up. Look at the person next to you and just say that. Wake up. Come on, you can say it louder than that. Look to the, so we got a person down here that has no one next to them. So just say it out loud. Come on, with me. Ready? I'll say it with you. Wake up. Somebody may have been sleeping and you helped them out. Here's the second thing. Look at verse 15. Thankfully, the story does not end there. It says, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Isn't it astonishing that the Lord, every time the people of Israel cry out, what does the Lord do? He doesn't say, you know what, I ain't picking up that line right now. You've already done this before. I'm going to allow you to suffer a little bit more because I'm a little upset right now that you're treating me like a yo-yo. The Lord doesn't do that. It's astonishing. He immediately comes through, even though the people of Israel keep sinning. But isn't that what makes the love of the Lord so different than the love that I so often show? Isn't that what makes the love of the Lord unfathomable? Isn't that what makes the love of the Lord merciful? Isn't that what makes the love of the Lord faithful? Isn't that what makes the love of the Lord what some people would look at as reckless? Yeah. See, here's the second way we utilize the Savior's strength to slay the slob of sin that's holding us captive. Number two, we call out to the Lord for forgiveness and deliverance. And we gotta wake up But we wake up to realize that we have a loving Savior who's there, arms open wide, to forgive, to restore what is broken, to give us deliverance. See, we're one of two people this morning. We are running to the Lord's forgiveness, or we are running away from the Lord's forgiveness. I can't remember who said it off the top of my head. It's not in my notes, but I can't remember this, but... I want to say it was Martin Luther, but I'm not sure. So you can correct me if I'm wrong. You can source check this. But but someone amazing said (laughs) that our life is to be a life of repentance. That I'm always running to the Savior's love for forgiveness and deliverance. And some of us, maybe it's been for 18 years. Maybe it's been for two weeks. Maybe it's been for five months. Maybe it's been for 30 years. I don't know the time frame, but maybe you do. And you've been running 
away from the very thing that can set you free. The people of Israel said, I know who we need to call out to. Even though it took us 18 years, we call out to the Lord for forgiveness and deliverance. You know, John 3, 16, we all know that verse, right? Most of us do. At least we know the sign that may be in the football stadium a year ago. Right, John 3.16 is the verse that reminds us of how we can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall never perish but have everlasting life, right? John 3.16 is that verse that we think of that allows us to experience a relationship with the Lord, forgiveness of sin. But listen to me, 1 John 1.9 is the verse that we need to be reminded of after we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Many of you know it well or you should that if I confess my sin, he is what? He is faithful, he is just to forgive me of my, all my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. The stuff that I feel shame about, the stuff that I feel guilt about, the stuff that I think that the Lord can't forgive, no, 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 all unrighteousness. Matthew 18, 12 through 13, we've heard reference of this, but I want you to know where it's found. It's found in Matthew 18, 12 and 13, where Jesus gives this parable, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go and search for the one who went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. Some of you are in this room and you're like, well, why isn't he happy about the 99 who are doing what the, what, what the Lord wants them to do? And you need to get over that. Because the point of this is the Lord's merciful love because at one time or another, guess what? You're the one and I'm the one. And thank the Lord that the Lord would leave the 90 and 9, so to speak, to go after the one. Here's why I'm telling you that this morning. Because I am never going to experience the Savior's strength to slay sin in my life that's holding me captive if I don't first wake up to my reality and secondly, remind myself of the Lord's mercy and forgiveness and call out to it, understanding that he's the only one that forgives, he's the only one that restores, and he is the only one who will give me deliverance. Because he's faithful. He's loving. He has a love that you and I in and of our own power can't give to one another. So can I ask you this? When are you coming home? When are you coming home? It says, here's what's necessary for you to come home. It takes confession. Lord, I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to call it what it is. I'm not going to blame someone else for it. I'm not going to shift it that my wife or my husband made me do this or my dad or my mom made me do this or this is just the way that I'm wired on the Enneagram scale. No, 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 no. I'm going to confess it. I'm going to confess it. And then I'm going to repent of it. Remember I said we're one of two people. We are running away from the Lord's forgiveness and deliverance or we are running to it. And repent means for me to turn away from my sin and run to my Savior. It takes confession and repentance for you to experience the Lord's forgiveness and deliverance. But here's what the Lord is asking you more than me on a Sunday morning on October 4th. When are you coming home? When are you going to stop believing that this consequences of sin that you're experiencing is the best God has for you? 
And can I just say this? The consequences that I experience of my sin is not a sign of God's rejection of me. It's a sign of God's love for me. Because I wouldn't be experiencing those consequences if I didn't have a loving father in heaven who was allowing those things to come into my life so that I will come back to him. That was the whole point of Israel captivity of God raising up Eglon. It wasn't like I'm doing this because I want to show you that I'm rejecting you. No, the Lord was doing it so that they would realize that the thing that they always wanted was the Lord himself. Look at the end of verse 15. So what happens? They call out to the Lord for forgiveness and deliverance, but look at what it says. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man, You're like, why does that emphasize? We'll talk about that here in a second. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, here's what we know about verses 1 through 11 about Othniel. He was from the tribe of Judah. I mean, the tribe of Judah, though, it's not yet here in Judges. If you know your Old Testament somewhat and and you're like fairly well read in the old testament you're like well that's the kingly tribe that's the tribe that the kings come from so judah was a tribe that was respected that was large that was strong and othniel came out of that tribe and 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 god providing othniel deliver the people of israel i mean that would have not that would have been like well of course of course i mean that would have been your first pick on the playground of course but here's what you need to understand about poor little ehud he's from the tribe of benjamin Benjamin was the smallest tribe. Wasn't a tribe that you would have looked at for, as strength or strong. It wasn't a tribe that you would have picked on the playground for your first pick. It probably would have been the last pick. But God says, I want this Ehud. And Ehud is described as a left-handed man. How many of you are left-handed this morning? You are very proud to be left-handed because you've had to live your whole life in opposition, right? Raise your hand. Come on, don't be ashamed. Raise it with your left hand. See, you're already raising it with your left hand. You know you're left-handed. I have a brother who's left-handed. I'm not left-handed. But in Bible times, someone who was left-handed was viewed, that was not something that you wanted, because the right arm, remember the right hand of the Lord, right hand is used as a, as a symbol of strength. And we know that's not true today because usually left-handed people can use both hands, which I think is much stronger. But nevertheless, Ehud is described as a left-handed man. The reason why that's pointed out is that would have made Ehud be the last pick on the playground, so to speak. And the way the language is in the Hebrew, there's actually an idea that Ehud was left-handed because his right hand was maimed. So not only do you have someone coming from the smallest tribe who would have already put him at a discount, but you have this individual that's left-handed, what was another knock against him, but he was left-handed because his right hand was deformed. So nobody would have chose Ehud to be the one to deliver Israel. And here's the significance of that. Because right now you're sitting in your seat or you're watching in your living room or wherever you're watching this. I wonder if you've minimized and allowed your insecurity or your weaknesses to create a deep-seated belief that the Lord can't do something in you. Michael, Johnny, I'm, I'm, I'm not as talented as this person. I don't, 
I don't know the Bible as well as this person. Or, I mean, we can go on and on with the reasons. And you've allowed your insecurity and your weaknesses to create this deep seed belief in you that the Lord can't do something in you. That the sin is holding you captive, that you cannot overcome it. You've allowed yourself to believe, man, why is it even worth a try? Why do I even call out to the Lord for forgiveness? Why not just live in this sin? Because God can't do anything in me, and he also probably can't do anything because I don't believe he can do anything in me. He can't do anything through me. But can I remind you of something? That your strength to overcome never resided in you in the first place. It never resided to you in the first place. The strength that I have to overcome what is holding me captive never resided in Johnny Pereira. And because it hasn't, doesn't reside in me, because it doesn't reside in you, then what had to happen? It, haven't, it had to be given to you. See, here's the third way that we slay the slob of sin that is holding us captive through the Savior's strength. Number three, we refuse to underestimate the power of the Spirit in you to overcome. You refuse that lie. You refuse that whisper in your ear that wants you to believe that you can't overcome. Instead, you remind yourself and you, you want to agree with whatever spiritual force that's wicked is whispering that in your ear and say, absolutely, you're right. But greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. It's a verse you need to write down if you need to be reminded. John 16, 33. Romans 8 says the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that moved that stone, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in me and it lives in you if you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's a verse that I think we gloss over and I don't think we'll ever understand the magnitude and the potential of that verse until we get to heaven. 1 John 4, 4. Write this passage of scripture down, little children. That's just simply a term of endearment, not probably something I would want to be called today. But little children, that's coming from a place of love from the apostle John. You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Man, that's a verse that you need to have right here and right here so you can say that to the lies that want you to think that you don't have the power of the spirit in you to overcome the sin that is holding you captive. And praise be to God that Ehud understood that even though I'm from the smallest tribe and even though I may be left-handed because my right hand is maimed, wait a minute, I'm going in the strength of the Lord. Here's the last thing. Look at verse 16. Look at what Ehud does. I love Ehud. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit or 18 inches in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute 
which the tribute would have been some type of gift, and most likely it would have been a grain offering because, after all, Israel's economy was agricultural. So he's bringing Eglon, who's a very fat man, as it's described in verse 17, more food to eat, which Eglon's not going to turn down. Verse 18. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribe, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. So the people that, that escorted him to bring the tribute, he tells them to go back, and he turns around and he says, no, no, I got a special message for you, king. So the king obviously wants to hear it. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence, verse 20. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, thrust it into his belly, Eglon's belly, and the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. I don't need to teach on that, right? Verse 23, then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the door of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Now jump down to verse 27. Then what happens? The people of Israel went down with him from the hill country and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me. Notice he doesn't say, look what I've done. No, no, no. He says, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him. They seed the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites. They didn't allow anyone to pass over. Verse 29, they killed at the time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong and abled body men, and a man not, and not a man escaped. You know what I think is interesting? God didn't need to put in there through the writer of Judges, who are not sure who it is. Most people think Samuel. Didn't need to describe the Moabites as all strong and able-embodied men. All these 10,000 men that were slain, you would have looked at them and said, not a chance, Israel. You don't stand a chance. But they defeated these individuals that looked like they were invincible. These individuals that were holding them captive. Why? Because the strength of the Lord was with them. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. Here's the fourth way and the last way that we use the Savior's strength to slay the slob of sin that is holding you, maybe holding me from being captive. We develop and execute a strategy to slay that slob of sin that's holding us captive. We develop and execute a strategy. I think that's so interesting that Ehud just didn't walk in there and say, I don't know what I'm going to do. I know this Eglon needs to go. Well, how are you going to do that, Ehud? Not sure. I'll make it up as I go. You see a very specific strategy that, that Ehud develops and he just doesn't have the strategy, he executes on it. Last week, Mark put up this chart that I came up with on the armor of God that's found in Ephesians chapter six. And I don't know about you, but I know this passage of scripture really, really well. 
I mean, I think back to the days of growing up, whether it was in Sunday school or youth group or whatever it is, man, I can picture all the different charts that were there with all the different Roman century, Roman centurions armor and what it was described by. Most people believe that Paul is writing this when he's in prison, so he probably was looking at that Roman guard in the armor that he was wearing. And I'm not gonna go through all the significance and how we can apply those pieces of armor to where we live. I encourage you, if you didn't last week, to get out your phone, take a picture of that because I think it's something that we need to remind ourselves of. But I wanna focus on one thing. I wanna focus on that last piece of armor, which is the sword. It's called the sword of the spirit in Ephesians chapter six. It's the only offensive weapon that is mentioned in Ephesians chapter six. And the sword of the spirit represents the word of God. It's the thing that you hold in your hand this morning. It's the thing that you're looking at on your phone. It's the things that hang on your wall maybe. And the Bible describes that as the sword of the spirit. And what I wanna draw your attention to, I've always wanted to preach holding one of these. <laughs> Lifelong dream. The beginning of verse 16 says this. I want you to see it. It says, Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges. I want you to underline in your Bible, made for himself. I was actually doing some research on what it took to make a sword. You know what it took? It took time. You gotta take this raw piece of steel and you've gotta heat it up and you gotta hammer it over and 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 over. You tired of me saying that? Over and over again. And you gotta make sure it's straight and then you gotta do hammer it some more. The quickest it can happen to make a sword like this, because it's sharp on both edges and doing what you were supposed to do during the times back then, was three to five days, minimum. And I think it's interesting, before Ehud ever goes out to slay the slob of sin, his name being Eglon, literally, is he takes time to make for himself a sword. He put in the effort, he put in the time, he put in the preparation. Listen to me, it takes intentionality for you to develop a strategy towards the sin that is holding you captive. You may have a sin that's holding you captive and you're like, you know when I'm most tempted to sin? It's between this time and this time. You know when I'm most tempted to sin? It's when I'm all by myself. You know when I'm most tempted to sin? It's when I walk into this environment then you know what you need to do? You need to develop a strategy. And how am I going to overcome that sin that is holding me captive? Because that's exactly what Ehud did. It takes intentionality to develop a strategy. It takes time and preparation to develop a strategy. Ehud made for himself a sword. It would have been just like this. This is 18 inches. No, I don't know how he strapped that to his leg because I'm like 6'1". And back then, Israelites at best were five foot. So I don't know if Ehud was walking around like this when he was doing this, but nevertheless, he hit it and they didn't realize he had it. 
But look at what it says. It says he bound it on his right thigh underneath his clothes. I think that's so interesting. And then it says in verse 21, Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into Eglon's belly. We'll stop with there because you were really waiting for me to preach about the end of that verse, which is not going to happen. It's the same in the Hebrew as the English, I promise you. You know what that shows me? Not only does it take time and preparation and effort to develop a strategy, But in order to execute that strategy, it takes faith on your part to believe. To believe in the thing that is going to slay that sin. It takes faith to believe. It takes faith to act. It takes faith to use what you have been given and the time you have taken and the preparation you have made to use what the Lord has given you to slay that sin that you are in captivity of. Hebrews 4.12 says, we have the word of God. It describes this sword of the spirit that it is quick and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the thing that the Lord has given us to use through the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome every single thing that is in our way. Every single thing that is holding us captive. And here's the next question. Where should this, let me just do this. Where should this sword be held? Because he had hit it in his right thigh. But what I love is when I look at Psalm 119, write this passage down, turn to it if you want. Psalm 119, 11 through 16, this is where we're to hide our sword. It says, your word I have hidden in my heart. Ehud hid his sword on his right thigh. The Lord says we hide our sword in our heart. Why? that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I've declared all your judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much in all the riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I got on my phone an app. And this app is called Fighter Verse. F I G H T E R, Fighter Verse. Some of you may be aware of it, others of you are not. I encourage every one of you to download it. I'm not getting royalties off of this little advertisement, I promise you. But I've had it on my phone for a long time. Because after all, I have the Word of God. And when I look at God's word, the word of God is the sword that God has given me to slay every sin that is holding me captive. So therefore, what should I do? Man, I should be hiding God's word in my heart, hiding God's word in my head, memorizing it. Here's some of the things. Here's the beautiful thing about this app is it lists topically 
the different struggles that we have and the verses that we can memorize to go along with it and ways for you to memorize that. It has things on anger, anxiety, contentment, endurance, fear, forgiveness, generosity, guidance, humility, joy, life in Christ, love for God, obeying God, God's presence, pride, provision, salvation, sanctification, security in God. I go on and on and on and on. Listen to me. We have been given every single thing to experience victory in our life. We have the reckless, faithful, merciful love of God that was demonstrated by him stretching out his arms and dying on the cross for our sins, living a perfect life, and being risen three days later from the dead so that if I place my faith and trust in him, I have forgiveness. But he didn't stop there. He gave me the Holy Spirit to live inside of me, to give me the power to do what I can't do, to experience victory that I can't experience on my own. And then he's given me the word of God to be the sword, to be able to slay everything that faces me. Listen to me, I want us to walk out of this room not believing that we don't stand a chance against that sin that's holding us captive, but to say to ourselves, no, 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 I have been given victory in Jesus Christ, and if I'm not experiencing that, then I need to wake up. I need to call out to the Lord for forgiveness this morning and deliverance. Man, I need to stop minimizing what the Lord can do in me. And man, I need to get disciplined about a strategy. Where am I weakest? Where do I need to ask someone, man, would you, would you come alongside of me and hold me accountable? accountable accountability isn't policing, it's partnership. And let's go after swinging our sword every day to slay that sin that is holding us captive. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing a song that we know well that speaks of the reckless love of God, but I wanna encourage you as we sing this song, maybe your response isn't to sing just yet. Maybe your response is to call out to the Lord's merciful forgiveness. Maybe it's time for you just to talk to the Lord and Say, Lord, I've been running away from your love and I want to run to it. I want to encourage you to submit to where the Holy Spirit has spoken. God, we are here today. Our lives are before you. Lord, we are weak in our own strength, but with you, with your power, through the Holy Spirit, we are strong. God, I thank you for the love that you have given us through your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.